Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Hello everyone, can you hear me? How about outside? Good. This is why we have microphones. Um, hopefully all of our speakers will hold them close enough to their faces so that we can, um, everyone can hear. So, biarking up the wrong tree was um, a late night decision. Uh, it was made a couple of weeks ago, so thank you all for coming at such short notice. It's amazing. It just goes to show how much... People will come along. I think tonight is also uh, the Reba London Awards, perhaps. And there's other uh, events going on. I think it's Clark and Will Design Week. So we're really, really pleased you could all be here. Much like a best man, I've looked up some dictionary definitions of architects, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, when you Google architects, the first thing that comes up, you don't have to click on anything, uh, it describes the word as derogatory, informal, which I think is, I, was, I wasn't expecting that. I was, I was expecting something a little bit more um, academic. Then it goes on to say a famous uh, or high-profile architect, fair enough. And then it gives an example of a sentence where architect may be used. A welcome departure from the ego-driven era of the architect. <laughs> this is just Google. This isn't even, I didn't even click on a website. So I think, you know, already the, the odds are stacked against us. Um, you, know, you know, what are architects? We've had celebrity architects and famous architects for a very long time, so it'd be interesting to see how, how far people want to go back with the concept of a architect. Um, Vasari obviously made a lot of uh, architects very famous in the Renaissance, uh, and then through the 20th century, we had the great modernists. Were they architects? Um, possibly not, because the term came about around about the time of the sort of geary Bilbao effect, which is where um, the architect became the personality who could reinvent an entire city with a single building, perhaps. There's already some uh, naysayers, which is great. That's what we want tonight. So I've also, looking up architect, I started to find a lot of data. A lot of people started looking up um, the wow factor of architecture, which in the 1990s, you know, there were studies where people tried to commodify how much this could improve uh, the viability of an area and the prices around it. And so, but we're not here to talk about 20th century uh, architects because we kind of did that already. We did a talk um, which was called Icon Therefore I Am, which was about uh, iconic architecture, which we did digitally. And we had... Um, Tom Main from Morphosis. We had uh, Tom Dykoff, another Tom who wrote a book called The Age of Spectacle. Um, 
And so what we wanted to do is kind of fast forward a bit, maybe to the now, like what are Starkitects today? What do they mean to contemporary society? Um, how useful are they? Um, what should they be doing? Um, there's lots of questions in there. So I've got four, I'm not going to stop talking, but I've got four amazing speakers tonight. Uh, so I'm going to introduce them in order and then we'll go to them. Uh, for, you know, well, I'll, I'll ask them a question. But so we've got um, Joy Nazari uh, from DN & Co, which are a sort of creative agency which help kind of develop identities and brands for places and buildings. Um, and so really they're kind of at the cutting edge of interface between what could be some iconic architecture and the general public. Um, but perhaps before a single brick has been laid, would you argue that? We've also got um, Manager Vergezi from the AA, whom you may have heard of Manager from the British Pavilion, which is currently on show at the Building Centre, if anyone wants to check it out. Uh, very, very good, I recommend it. And we have Will Jennings, the artist and writer, um, and critic, reporter, Editor, creator of Recess Space. And we also have um, Patrick Schumacher from Zaha Hadid Architects. I don't know if I need to introduce Patrick, but here he is, um, who has designed some incredibly uh, iconic, I would say, buildings and places, and he can explain more about that later. So I think, first of all, I'd like to go to Joy, if she has a microphone. She does. I do. Great. And so, Joy, I'd kind of like to start with you, start maybe with a provocation. You know, how important would it be to you to have a building that is a kind of a statement building within a development? And, and, and what do you think about the idea of creating a sense of identity? Uh, it's, a big, it's a big question. And I definitely, I, I, I have a lot to say about that. I've worked with quite a few architects. I've worked with quite a few, in fact, many, many more non-architects. Um, and a lot of a lot of places, uh, and I would say the first thing is that um, I'm, I'm not sure people do buy the architect or the architect always, um, but it, it can help, especially um, in, in some certain cases. But I wanted to maybe start, if I can, by by just having issue with the word architect uh, primarily, and um, I'm going to be very high risk and have a cultural observation. I have lived in this country for 22 years. You would never guess given I sound like a total yank. Um, and I'm Brazilian, by the way, so I'm not totally Yankee, but um, I, do, I was educated in the States. That's why I sound like this. Um, but I, I think you know, 22 years into living in London, um, I would say there is a particular cultural nuance in this country, and that is a bit of disdain, or rather a lot of disdain, uh, for success. And I think that's what tinges... When we say architect, we're sort of hissing... It's like, they're successful. And it's this really insidious thing we have in this country, which is a sort of loathing for people who've done well. Um, he, he, no one ever said, that Thomas Heatherwick guy, shit, he did a good job, man. <laughs> like, they say he's a fucking not an architect. You know, that's, you know, that's so... I, I think I have a real issue, generally, with this sort of need to hiss and boo at success generally. And I know that's a deeply sort of probably American thing. But gen generally, I, I think it actually affects the architecture industry quite badly because we're not very good always as architects at marketing ourselves actually. And maybe we look at the people who actually did it right and we look at them and go, oh, boo, hiss. 
But actually, you know what? We could probably actually just go, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. They're, you know, maybe they've done something right besides doing some good architecture along the way. So I think I have this little, this little thing, which incidentally, from my perspective, it, it's this um, class system problem that at some point, you know, the Aristos kind of convinced us in this country that it was gauche to be successful. Like, oh no, you know, this is the only place in the whole planet, by the way, where being middle class is actually an insult. <laughs> you know, that, that's, it's like, oh no, you're successful, sis. Uh, so I, I think I would just start by saying, like, can we just like lay off people who've done all right and just maybe once I just I encourage everyone to leave and turn to someone and get you go, hey, you did this thing recently. Do you know what? Good job. That was, that was kind of cool, that thing you did. Well done, you. And when was the last time we sort of did that? So I, I would just start by saying, like, maybe we can just do a little bit less boo-hiss um, to successful people just generally. Um, so uh, the answer for me, though, to your, to your actual question, Rob, is... Um, it, it, generally, in what, in what I do, uh, it, it's about creating a connection between human beings and a place, and that place can be any kind of place. And you use all sorts of things to create that connection. And if I'm really brutal, I would say the architect is, is pretty low on the list of things that we're doing to create that connection. And I think if you're using the architect to create that connection, you, 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 maybe you're in the middle of a desert um, because <laughs> you know there should be other stuff that you're you're talking about and that you're creating to 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 sort of be meaningful. Of course, it's on the list. Um, however, there are other things um, in in the long journey to selecting an architect. There are so many obstacles, as you all know very well, in the way. And one of them is is the person who decides at the end of the day has some things like one they don't want to be fired. Right? They, 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 want to, they, they don't want to be fired. So it's like, what's the, what's the selection criteria in order to, to, to not be fired? And maybe selecting a star architect sometimes is, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get fired for hiring that, for the, hiring that architect. Um, but then there's more. There is, I mean, the Bilbao effect, I'm sure, will be discussed. Um, but sometimes, you know, you can get a master planner of an architect who's going to do a, a, a big plan, and that will draw, um, that will create a bit of a draw. Um, I think, you know, we call it the sort of familiarity heuristic where, you know, if I've heard that name, it must be important, and therefore it must be valuable. Um, but those people also draw in lots of smaller architects, and I think the sort of overall effect can, can, can be super, super, duper positive. Um, so from, from my perspective, it's not all bad, but also the, the name of the architect is not everything. <sighs> Boo hiss. <laughs> um, do we have a microphone on that side? So, um, manager, I'll, I'll go to you next. Um, I guess maybe culturally, maybe when you're organising exhibitions or you're, or you're thinking about um, describing big concepts, do, does the fame or the name uh, factor into it? Does it? Is it going to draw more people in? Like, what do you, what do you, how, do, how do you approach the star architect, I guess? Should I just push it out? Okay, now it's on, sorry. Um, God, I organize lectures for a living and I can't turn on a microphone. So it started really well. Um, so I frequently, I organize lectures and exhibitions at the Architectural Association um, primarily. And uh, I frequently get critiqued by students uh, for not inviting enough star architects to give talks there. 
Um, that said, several they, years... They want, they want it. Some students do. Um, they, they'd like to just be in the same room. I mean, like, I, people don't even come downstairs to go to a lecture. They watch it online. Um, so it's very difficult to get people to come to the room. But um, I think I am in a very lucky position in that I don't have to sell tickets to, to go to lectures there. I run a free public program. And so I can take risks in inviting people that maybe aren't going to fill the room but are doing something interesting. And what I really love about my job is that it, I can, like, think about someone who maybe people haven't heard of, um, but they should know about. Um, and maybe they w aren't going to come downstairs and go to the lecture, but they might watch it online later. But um, I don't know. I think what's interesting is that there's... I, on the one hand, I think there are some people that critique the fact that I don't invite enough architects to the public program. But on the other hand, I remember like several years ago, uh, Ben Van Berkel gave a lecture at the AA. And when I was a student, he was an external examiner. And like we were literally like, clawing each other to try and get him to be our external examiner. And I ticketed the lecture because I assumed it would be really popular, which just meant that like you have to collect a ticket to enter the room. It's not, you don't have to pay for it. But loads of students didn't know who Ben Van Berkel was. Um, and it was just really, it was like a few years later after like, you know, me and my peers had like tried to like fight each other to, to kind of get into the lecture, to, to kind of get into the room where Ben Van Berkel was external examining. And they were like, well, maybe if you'd said it was UN Studio, we would have known. But like people didn't know his name. So I just, I think, um, I think part of the reason why I don't invite as many star architects is because I feel like there's lots of interesting things that architects have to say, but I don't think... I like, I've loved what Joy said about, um, you know, I think it was a great summary of, of British culture. But um, I think that the notion that success is singular is really problematic. I think that so much of architecture is inherently... ...and it starts as a problem in education. Like, we... At the A, at least, we insist to like in, in the five-year degree course that we have to assess people as individuals. But there are so many, I mean, like the tutor-student relationship is a collaboration. There's like so many of your peers that inform your project. And so, um, whereas like earlier tonight, I was talking to Patrick about how in the postgraduate programs, a lot of what they do is group work. And that's actually much more similar to how we operate in practice. So I don't understand why it has to be an individual. And I think the problem with star architecture is too often it's celebrating an, an individual as though they, d they came up with all these genius ideas when actually it's just their name that's on the door. And there's a whole host of people and consultants and collaborators and, I mean, all sorts of things. Like the pavilion project that I recently did is a result of so many people who are on our team, but also so many other people that just gave us advice for free or, you know, wanted to give us a reference. Like a student that was working at reception gave me one of the best book references um, that, at, at, from the AA when, like, when I was just staying late one night working. So how do you create a form of practice that celebrates collaboration as opposed to the individual. Yeah, I suppose um, <clears throat> when I was looking at this list of, there is a list of current alive star attacks uh, on the internet, which I think is definitely written by an American. But there are, it doesn't list firms. It just lists individuals. Um, you know, I mean, it says where they work. It says where they work in instances where maybe it thinks it's helpful. So it says, uh, Winnie Mass... Um, MVRDV, but Toyo Ito, just Toyo Ito. But anyway, uh, so coming on to you, Will, so you, I mean, you've now in quite a privileged position where you get to go and visit buildings, and um, uh, so you get to see all the good and the, the good and the maybe not so good points. And um, also, you're, you know, you're quite active on some social media. Um, 
so I was just, I was just kind of, we were talking before this all kicked off about Star Architects and the outside world. I mean, from your perspective, what do you think people think of Star Architects? Do they care? Um, it's on, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm interested in, I guess, who uses the word. Like, uh, we've just been hearing about students, and if they are not coming to someone who's got the prefix star, and if this was in any other cultural sector, if it was music and Harry Styles was giving a talk, they would be fighting down the door, but not a star in architecture, even the people who care about it. Um, if it's not, the architects really maybe don't use that because they do understand that collaborative network, but it's maybe just, is it media? I think it's just media, really. And, and the problem, maybe even not even architectural media, like the, the media beyond, and there's a problem there about communication of architecture and its collaborative nature, its discourse, its history, its potential, its failures to wider press, like we all know about it, we talk about it, we write about it, we read about it, but Daily Mail, even Guardian readers, maybe once a week there might be something in the Guardian about architecture and or however good Ollie is, it's only going to hit some people, it's only going to hit some people at a certain political angle, um, and they're probably more likely to read it if it's a star architect at the top. So maybe there's something there about how we get outside of the bubble, and you talked about social media bubble, you talked about students and networks, I also maybe just want to think about, I don't know, I'm, the thing you read earlier, it was on Wikipedia, which said, which had that kind of pithy statement. I guess that was America writing that. If it was on Wikipedia, it could be anyone from around the world. And the, the point you were making about maybe it's just Britishness, I'm not so sure about that. I was in the queue at Biennale a couple of weeks ago, and there was four Russians in front of me to queue up into the Italian pavilion. I don't know a word of what they were saying. One word I knew, they said a lot, which was Starchitect. And they were not saying it in a positive way, whatever they were saying. It was a lot, a lot, Starchitect. Starchitect. So I think... They were educated here. There we go. <laughs> but, but I think the fact that it was introduced as a word of disdain, the fact that it's, I can't see how the word could be used anywhere. Uh, yeah, I get that. But I also just think maybe um, architecture just isn't thought of in a very deep way. And that's partly to do with our fault. And I think... If we could attack that monolith ego of what a star architect is and think about architecture. And I also want to think, it's interesting you talked about firms, because I was thinking the other day about how a lot of younger firms now that I read about and write about and see buildings don't have the name of the practitioner within the title. Or it's an acronym, like a word made up of an acronym or a random word rather than the name of the person. And I'm all for that, I think, something which might outlive them. You know, and, and live, live on. Do you think there are? Um, <clears throat> do you think there are some architects who enjoy? Uh, I don't know which don't know direction I'm going in. Um, I don't. Do you think there are some architects which enjoy? You know, it being about them. They kind of play up to it, and they sort of say, you know, yeah, I'm. That's me. I'm the lone genius. Buy me. Buy me. Cor buy me corporations. Buy me billionaires. Yeah, but I think even they don't believe it. Like, Bjarke Ingels might love to be the figurehead and travel around and meet dictators around the world, but he knows... I mean, he does. I mean, you wouldn't get VPPR going to Brazil to, to see what the future of tourism could be there. But he also knows that he employs hundreds and hundreds of really good young practitioners um, who are bringing the ideas. Uh, so they might like it, but I think they don't necessarily believe it. No, and also, um, I have to say, Bjork Engel's lecture at the AA, I didn't ticket, and I got into a lot of trouble because the queue for that wrapped around the block. Like, all, like it, he was like the Harry Styles of architecture. Pe people were throwing themselves at him and throwing their business cards at him. And I was like, when did all these students print business cards? So, 
you know, Ben Van Bokel, no one knows who he is, Bjork Ingels, everyone knew who he was a long time ago. So, um, Patrick, you know, you've designed uh, some kind of, you know, some of the world's most famous buildings and structures. Um, you know, you've dealt with probably governments and big business, you know, uh, how do you feel about, you know, the you know names and, you know, um, making a splash before you've already kind of walked into the pitch meeting? Well, I think the, the concept of star architecture and star architects is, I, I agree, is an artifact of the media and it somehow signifies that the reason why somebody's famous is kind of lobbed off there's a lot of information, although when, when you really reflect about it, these, all the famous names have been initially um, peer-selected within the discourse. And within the discourse, we also use names and reference. Uh, but we don't, but the, 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 the word star architecture and similar with icons, iconic buildings, they're just celebrity and fame and brand. Uh, and, but because we can't transport the complex reasons and history which allowed this particular firm, individual, or, or, or building to be appreciated as special. So the way I see it, the mass media, the critics, architectural crit critics mediate, they're, they're embedded in the architectural discourse proper, where something like a, star, a phrase of a star architecture or celebrity is meaningless and an embarrassment. <laughs> they have to transport, but the names are there, generated, and then they become in the mass media. Uh, it, it's difficult to explain why this is important, and it's just then simply, it is important. Why? Because it is. You know, because this is a star. So, and so, but I realize also that the uh, in terms of the market, the general public and particular um, clients need that. You know, brands are there in around the world. They carry some information. There's some reputational information which is encapsulated simply in the fact that it is a brand, and you rely on that. And of course, it's the same with the way we operate. I mean, we, if you had major corporations or cities, major investments, you know, which are very important, they want, and you can't just pre-buy it. You have to buy into a trusted pair of hands that this isn't cocked up. And all you have is this kind of brand and reputation uh, because it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be a new creation uh, you have a lot of expectation. You put a lot of your institutional uh, desires and ambitions and funds into it. And that what leads to the necessity of some kind of orienting for lay clients. They go for that. And, and, and still they do competitions, but they will have pre-selections. There's five, usually a group of five. And what do they go by? They have to go by that, and so that's the contradiction. It's a useful term, but internally, of course, it it it, it it's shallow, it, and also probably some of these reputations linger on for too long. And there's new figures we're now interested in. I mean, that has been, you know, particularly the shift from you know, let's say, a lot of these postmodern architects. They were so out <laughs> within the discourse, and yet they were the star was shining on, and that's an example where you realize it's really superficial and stupid. But maybe for clients that were still working to have a Richard Mayer or you know um, uh, Michael Graves or something, so we thought is kind of uh, very shallow and not, not cutting edge. So so there is this. That's the problem. That slight um, uh, inertia of hanging on for too long, and also that there's a lot of other talent out there 
who you know, maybe the big firms take too much because of that information processing problem that there's only an attention for you know, maybe 25 names and not 250 names. And that is maybe unfair and it's not, it's not quite right. We actually like the data work a lot with the younger talent, bring them in and, and work with them. And by the way, I, you know, and, <clears throat> and I think, but ultimately, um, of course, there's a reason why these, let's say, success is there. And similarly with the iconic building, um, I mean, there's something going on if it's different. It's not that, I, I mean, there has been sometimes in Dubai and places like this, epigons where they go for a quick spectacle, um, but most of those famous, inverted commas, iconic buildings, they're just original, they have some rigorous new process and ambitions, and they, they look different, because they have some new, uh, you know, potentially innovations, not just novelty, but it cannot, that cannot be transported equally. So there's a similar loss of information. So that's why I'm, even it's ambiguous, I have to say, and within the Discord, of course, we, we don't want to be, um, um, you know, we, we also, it becomes a derogatory term. Because, well, do you, well, do you, know, you, do you think, because going back to you, where you talked about a safe pair of hands, you know, do you think one of the characteristics of the Star Architect is that their brand continues despite um, sometimes a bad reputation? You know, I, can, I think we're all aware of, like, there have been some countless scandals, um, you know, where a building has gone wrong or something has gone wrong, but the star architect just seems to breeze past it and move on. I mean, there is, for me, I think it's, uh, let's say, if you look, we mentioned Biaki and, uh, and uh, Big. So they have 700 people, but I do think things needs leadership, and, and there is, of course, a lot of talent, like we, we have 500 people. My God, and so to some extent, authorship is like, you know, if you're 100 ghostwriters, and I'm much more an author of my books and articles than of the various works. But still, leadership matters, guiding and, and decision-making, and authorship is also just taking responsibility and stepping forward and defending what's been generated. And that's why also nothing goes out of the door without that kind of interlocutor. And I think Biaki and BRG and a lot of these firms, you can usually, I'm stunned, I mean, you can rely nearly on that they will do something original, something which has interest, intelligence, it's not just, uh, it has something. I mean, that's what Klein also realized. You can, you, and I think therefore I defended to some extent that we have names, of, and I agree 100% that's too much piling onto them, and there's many more which should be recognized. And I'm, but, but, but it still doesn't, can't be altogether dismissed. That's what I feel. But um, yeah, I mean, it becomes kind of, superficial celebrity then uh, when it reaches the point where I said earlier here when, when you come to your own teaching studio and your students want to have selfies with you and so on it's or are, that's really missing the point okay. then you realize um, uh, that that a lot of phenomena are, are problematic <laughs> we, we're getting maybe too much attention and so on and there should be many more coming forward but ultimately there's will be it, it will never be it will, it will always be a, a certain concentrating on certain um, fewer names and the new corporations, the new companies, the new project types, they Pat also need much larger firms. Patrick, which you need to build up longer if you build an airport and things can, like this. Can that, I ask, that can't so be Patrick, a, new, a new phase. Yeah. Patrick, I just wanted to ask, early on, I think um, Rob alluded to it, you said um, 
a safe pair of hands or something, you know, a trusted kind of architect. But anyone who's walked over, and I mentioned again, Venice and walked over um, the footbridge in Venice will wonder why he ever gets another job, Calatrava. Um, because it, it fails on every level. It fails on budget, it fails on material, it fails on usability, diversity, material, everything. Um, and yet, you know, you mentioned, I can't remember which architect you mentioned, I think Daedalus is probably the, the first architect and the first architect as well. He kept failing. He kept killing his clients and he kept falling <laughs> upwards and he killed his own son. So there is this history of kind of the great architect who does fall upwards. And I think that isn't about reputation. It's about something beyond that. And you mentioned brand and maybe Joy can speak to that. I'd which, love to pick up on that. kind of is about... It's also yeah, it's, capacity. It's, you know, it's, it's capacity of the organisation and so on and all the talents you... I mean, it's a figure, but... There's so much talent coming to that because they're motivated also by that some of that glory and interest, but also project they're interesting. So there's this kind of a pole of attraction, accumulating talent in these nodes, and then they operate globally. And that's difficult to just dismiss. I mean, I, the, and, but it. But so, I don't think the uh, clients are always picking them because of a track record no, no, of good no. quality and well-delivered value. Of course, you have buildings. to have competitions always, and you're also newcomers in. But what one client once said to me also, he realized that he has to choose a star architect, not because of the name, but because what also there's, so there's reasons why names have become names: conviction, uh, standing up to the project, to the planners, to the community, and 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 you know that that idea of let's say, um, enthusiastic engagement and commitment. I mean, that's what you find. I mean, in my in Zaha was like this. Every, all these figures we become famous for a reason. They're, they're just this tenacious uh, will to, to, to create something which, which and, and otherwise things can, don't get done a lot. That's what this guy said, and it's true, I think. Yeah, let's, let's Joy, let's bring you back in. Did you have something so, to say about it? I think there's a... There's an interesting uh, sort of lateral thing we can look at, which is in the fashion industry. And you get fashion houses that are named after the original creative genius. But we don't call them fashion, Starkiv fashions, <laughs> whatever. Uh, we, you know, we, just, we call them fashion houses. And they become a, a sort of a business. And I think what... what we have a, whoever coined Starkitect sort of messed it up for us all in our sort of nomenclature here because we have a failure to jump from there was the sort of original creative genius, he or she has trained, you know, uh, the sort of future generations of um, sort of fantastic architects and a lot of these, you know, huge firms do have phenomenal, those are the people you work with, are the phenomenal people that work there now and have been trained. Not all of them do great things. Right, because you know, Calatrava probably didn't design that bridge. I'm just gonna say. Uh, so the, I think the thing is, we've we've Starkitect is like it sounds like one human, but like we need a fashion house equivalent for what we what we start to talk about a, a you know a, an architecture practice. Maybe, maybe it, well, I don't know. I feel like S I feel like S O M have done quite a good job of that. Bizarrely, I'd never thought of them before, but I feel like they've. Having got to know them, I feel like they sort of believe in their brand and their house, but you know, without any of the original partners. partners yeah, and, um, it, and that's maybe maybe that's the thing is that for me, Foster, you know, obviously Norm's still still around and he still does his thing, but th there are hundreds of others doing that thing, and and I think the difference is that clients are aware of that, aren't they? And they're aware of that, yeah, exactly. So I, th I think we need to start talking about you know less about architects and more about 
architecture houses. And, and the collaborative nature is, is really important. You've got huge amounts of research and huge amount of experimentation and all of that stuff to recognize as opposed to just not one guy you know, sketching uh, you know, on, a, on, on a piece of paper um, anymore or hasn't been for a long time. So I love that sort of lateral comparison to fashion houses. I can't, you know, there are a lot of great fashion houses where you no longer, ha you no longer have that figurehead is no longer around. Um, and even if they're alive, they're not, you know, Stella McCartney, she does not design everything. Um, and she's, she's obviously still there. It's a fashion house. It's not Stella's studio. Uh, so I, I think there's an interesting lateral thing. The brand, it becomes, at some point, it goes from being a guy or a gal uh, to becoming a, a business. And uh, so Starkitects, the word undervalues the whole idea of it turning into a brand and a machine that could be very well-oiled um, and, and very professional and very serious and very well researched and uh, and good. Um, it's, it's interesting in my research. Uh, a lot of people do blame the media, as always. They say it's the media's fault. Um, also, some people said that they blame Pritzker Prize because the Pritzker Prize seems to always be for a person. And obviously, um, you know, I think the classic example that goes is old news to most people is Venturi Scott Brown. They gave it to Robert Venturi and not Denise. You know, and so. Um, uh, perhaps, um, perhaps the prizes and awards are, are skewed in the wrong direction. Um, would, I'm going to try and get some other people involved in a minute if they want to. We've got a hand up lightning fast. Um, I was just going to ask one more thing to manage today and then I'll come to you. And then um, also just wanted to remind everyone you can have a question for an individual panellist, you can have a question for the whole panel, or you could just have a thought or a comment. You know, we're not one of those talks where you go, oh, no, it's a comment. We don't, we're actually kind of welcome that kind of free discourse. So, you know, Manager, I was just, did you have a point to make or can I ask you a question? Yep, maybe I'll make my point as an answer to a question. <laughs> yeah, just answer it with whatever you wanted to say. No, I was just thinking, do you think, um, do you think there's ever a situation where there's a bit of a feedback loop with Starkitects where maybe they start to believe their own hype? And maybe they think, I can cure world hunger with buildings. I can do it. Put me on the front cover of Time magazine, please. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that's definitely the case in that architects think that they could do everything to a certain extent, and, and they can't. And I think that's maybe like... I'm so good at graphic design. Uh, yeah, or like, uh, you know, solving Ooh. huge problems that are beyond any one profession's remit, let alone an individual. Um, but I think that's a myth we're selling ourselves through this kind of idea of the star architect or through the fact that every problem has a solution. Um, and maybe that's some... I think there are lots of... What I, the point I was going to make earlier is that there are a lot, of, a lot of systems set up within architecture and beyond architecture that only want to recognize an individual. Like, even just co-curating a project with one other person, like, we, the institution that commissioned us to get them to recognize both of us as co-curators was a struggle in the beginning. Um, and then to even get journalists to want to speak to both of us has been a struggle throughout. And we believe that the project is better told through the two of us being there because we have different perspectives. But it was just really impossible to enable any of the systems within architecture to understand that there could be more than one author. Um, and that's not even giving credit to like our wider team and all the other people who were involved. So I, I just think that there are so many of these systems, like, prize, like prizes can only recognize individuals for some unknown reason. Um, that you know, media only wants to talk to one person, as though like additional voices would just muddy the waters. Like there's a way to, you know, structure a conversation so that multiple people can take part. And I just think that in order to like, there are huge issues that we do need to address, and architects should have agency and a voice in them. 
But should we be doing it alone? No. It's the brief answer to your question. I, I really, can I want to jump in and just say I really agree with that so much, Manager, especially because the, the, all the research coming out now just for problem solving around the world says that if we want to problem solve well, we have to do it with, in diverse groups. So if we are just elevating problem solving to like one character, we're in really big trouble. And, but uh, the, that research needs to come out sort of and have a profound effect on how we understand that diverse groups actually create better outcomes. And uh, maybe what we need, really need to do out of today is upset the prize-giving industry <laughs> in a big way. I'd, I'd love to see um, a Pritzker Prize winner publicly turn it down. And, you know, mic drop. It's a, it's a team effort, guys. The only problem is I don't, I don't think it quite works like that because Pritzker actually liaise with the prize winner for quite a long time beforehand. So it's not going to work. But um, uh, we had a hand up, if you're still willing to question or comment. I think so. Um, so I'm not an architect. I do work with architects quite a lot. And uh, what you're saying here, like here? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what you were saying that people don't remember more than 25 names and you were saying about fashion houses kind of made me think it's almost going into the school of thought because at my job we work a lot with somebody who used to be at Zaha Hadid and uh, we're always like, oh, that's Daiva, okay, that's Zaha Hadid type things. And then we started working with somebody else. It's like, oh, okay, she used to work at John McCaslin and then... And I, I wonder, would that be the clients also expecting the, the same type of thing? So you have a vision, and then you like find yourself a mood board. So is, is this like the architect stink? You can't you can't wash it off after you've worked for a for a big name. I don't know. I never worked for a architect. <laughs> I mean, it's quite annoying that sometimes. Uh, Clients have preconceptions. They've seen some some work. Maybe this is you know, what we've done ten years ago, and then there's an expectation. They're disappointed. Oh, this isn't really what we expected. This, I don't recognize that. That's a limiting factor. Kind of con you know becomes a conservative force. Unfortunately, so it's uh, that's why we prefer competitions where we're winning <laughs> through also an expert jury, and the client is less empowered when it comes to. Um, the look at the look and style and articulation and uh, but it's driving more the social processes and functionality and there's a division of labor there so but it, yeah there's a problem to be to be um, it becomes a, um, a cage kind of does anyone else want to uh, jump in or shall I yeah we've got a just uh, where are that Um, okay, so I'm a, I am a Yank and uh, went to school in the States, and I think there was still similar disdain for like the term architect, but maybe it came from a different place, which is not so much that success is bad, because uh, obviously Americans love success, and they love the lone hero, they love the genius, right? That's like very much part of the myth. But I do think there's something... Um, there is something like in the culture of the practice which has to do with like, oh, you should do it because you love it. Like somehow success betrays the passion for the craft. Like you shouldn't sell out kind of thing. And so if you are successful, you must have sold out. I think that that's, that, that's kind of like my take that's, not, that's maybe global among the practice, right? If you're a creative person, because that's in all creative fields. 
So, and then I think another thing that's happening right now, obviously, is all the conversation around unionizing and what it's like as a young architect in a practice. And it seems to me, so, you know, I, I work as a consultant, basically, so I get to see lots of different architecture firms and how they operate, which is very cool to see. It seems to me that star architects, so to speak, I mean, they have the most, they have the biggest megaphone for what matters to the industry, right? They speak to the people with the resources. So if Thomas Heatherwake is the billionaire whisperer, it really matters what he's whispering to those billionaires. Um, and so what one could say. Um, so I guess this is like a question, um, which is like, if you do reach that pinnacle of success in the industry, do you have a responsibility back to the industry to address some of those, of those items or not? I mean, I think in, like in an American context, once you're a billionaire, you can do whatever the hell you want. No one's gonna, you know, I mean, people say Bezos should do this and that, but no one's really holding him to account. So within our practice, if the star architects are the ones that have if the most agency, the most agency, right? And the biggest megaphone, do they have a responsibility to address those other issues? And if they are successful, I would think they're the ones that pay their staff the best to draw the best talent. But I know that a lot of the firms that are the most successful have the most unpaid internships or they have the most people that aren't being compensated. Um, I'm not saying all of them. I'm just saying, you know, like, uh, <laughs> I, um, uh, so yeah, I guess that, that's my kind of question is, is it a responsibility? Like, because uh, it can feel when you're young that you don't, you don't, have a, you don't have the voice they have, and the people that do eventually get there don't use it for the things you cared about when you were just out of school. So, um, I think there are two things in that which kind of interrelate, which are interesting. One is that, yes, those people that have power in whatever industry um, should like, understand what that means and to hold it with um, some sensibility and ethics, which is not always the case in any. You, know, you look at the politicians we have, they have power. They also don't necessarily hold that conch with, uh, with all the importance that it should. Um, but also this idea of, um, you talked about unionization. I think it's also more than that. There is a lot of unionization now, but also there's a lot of employee-owned companies. And I think of like Make, you know, who Ken Shuttleworth should be a star architect. He could have been if he wanted when he left Foster's. He designed the Gherkin. Um, his company is employee-owned, which means that their buildings don't all look the same as each other. So it kind of shakes off that mantle that maybe you're talking about of a client expecting a uh, like the model of the one they saw before, which I, I get as a gilded cage as a problem. Um, I don't like all of their buildings, and I find it weird how sometimes, from what I understand, would be very young, ethically-minded uh, architects could often come out with some of the stuff like it's happened at Boardgate and on the South Bank. So I don't always quite see how it works. I know that there's lots of different models to employee ownership, which I know AJ, I think, are looking at at the moment. But, um, but I think there's something interesting there about how how to allow those voices inside to speak so it isn't just lots of people trapped to deliver a typology, which is that officer's look, and then they move to McCaslin, and they have to suddenly adapt to a different kind of cladding system or a different typology. And I don't really know how that gets out, and I've never run a company of 500 people, so I'm not the person to necessarily answer that, and I totally understand that when an architect migrates from an office of maybe 10 people and they expand, there's more responsibility than just making a good building. There's people's livelihoods and mortgages and families and stuff. So I get what that might trap you into as a business as well. 
Um, and to, I just want to touch on what we've talked about with other industries, you know, and I think the word would be fashionistas if we had, if we had to do one for fashion. Or, or startorialist. Startorialist is good. But, yes, but we, but yes, startorialist. You're both hired. But we, <laughs> but we don't have them in other industries, though we do have some of the same problems. And I'm interested in considering architecture against other cultural sectors, because we shouldn't see ourselves as separate to art or fashion or whatever. Um, in art, we don't have startists, but yet we have the same problem that an artist has always seen to be the artist, and yet he has a team of 100 people. And Does uh, Damien Hirst even Hurst. physically Hurst. touch anything anymore? I don't think so. No, and he probably shouldn't, looking at his work. But, um, <laughs> but um, the film, film does. They always have the director, and the director is often not the singular voice of those films, but they have credits at the beginning or the end, which lists sometimes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people very few architects' websites I've been on list many of the collaborators, the landscape architect, the engineers, people in the office, whoever. Some do, and I like it when they do. There, is, there are some practices I've noticed who are, um, they now, I mean, certainly internally they list the project team, which I think is really nice, because there'll be like a part one or a part two on that list, and they could point to that and say... Chipperfield, Heatherwicks, architects do do that increasingly, but not all companies do, yeah. Anyone? Oh, we've got a, an outside correspondent. If we can, uh, if we can reach them, we have two microphones coming to you. Thank you. Um, yeah, just kind of following on from both of Will's points, actually. Um, so, also, uh, Patrick touched on it earlier. So, sort of having styles in companies, and um, sort of Patrick mentioned like having originality with going to a star architect, but feel free to be proven wrong by other people, but uh, sort of, you know, with some practices, you can tell instantly exactly which practice did it, and that's quite a, it might be original in some ways, but in other ways, it's, it's just their thing, and it's, you know, kind of what you're gonna get before you even start the project, or at least you might have an idea of what you want. Um, and also about uh, sort of ownership of things, and I'm, I'm an architect, gone architecture photographer, and so, if I take photos of a practice, then my name is on it. But then, as an architect, even if I'd worked on it for three years, my name wouldn't be on it because I'm not the project architect. And so maybe, maybe it's a thing for sort of uh, to be introduced into contracts for architects or part twos and part ones to be credited on projects that they've worked on, even if it's just for six months. Uh, sort of. What, what if someone set up like an IMDb for architecture and the whole built? Sector, so that actually you could see a list of what roles someone. I wish, I, I wish idea. I could tell you how many times I'd heard someone say, "We need an IMDb for architecture. We need a Facebook for architecture. We need a, a Twitter for architecture." We, that is Twitter. We've got Twitter. Um, no, but I thought it was a really interesting point you made there about, um, you know, if you've got a massive practice where there are loads of voices and lots of designers, and yet the buildings are incredibly recognisable. Surely that is coming from the top, coming from the founder, the, the name. Maybe surely they're, they're driving that um, because people are saying, yeah, that's definitely a ZHA building. I mean, what do you... Um, I need another microphone, but what do you... Uh, I'll pass you mine. What do you think about that, Patrick? You know, how does... Um, you know, what, what's happening there when people say, that's definitely one of your buildings, Patrick? But um, you're saying that you know you've got 500 people working for you. Yeah, I think it's a limitation. It's limiting to some extent, of course. 
I wouldn't say the same thing if I say parametrism tectonism, a larger movement, which I think you can recognize also and is more diverse as many authors. And I rather, be, yes, I will want to be recognized as that to some extent. It has a set of values and principles. At, but then Zadi architects within that only speaks towards limitations. But of course, you to some extent, because you have the, the same similar people, methodologies, approaches, softwares, references internal, that there is, it becomes recognizable to some extent. I mean, we make a deliberate effort also, and we, we, we have a quite diverse uh, portfolio, I think, in terms of types of approaches, materiality, uh, morphologies. Of course, they share something which makes them distinct from, let's say, minimalism or other predominant styles. That makes them recognizable, and we are the very, the very much, let's say, the most famous in that idiom. But there could be many other projects, I think, from other architects you could... Sorry, and so I do find it limiting. Uh, so I very much want to be recognizable as, as, with a certain style, which for me is a set of principles and values which fit to the contemporary, but I don't want to be recognized as Zadi architect. And Zah also was always kind of against being so recognized and being forced to make something recognizable. It's an attempt to continuously evolve and be original, but not in a random, not novelty, but along a sort of trajectory of progress. And, I can't elaborate that now, but we have endlessly writing, trying to write about it and critique it and build a whole movement. So I'm interested uh, using also, you know, what the teaching in the A and elsewhere to develop something. And it is interestingly, yes, it is quite recognizable, <clears throat> but the name itself I don't want to be recognized by because it just, as I said, it's a, it, it shows that we, we're not as versatile as we would wish to be. So I'm going to do something uh, that... So this uh, uh, talk also becomes a podcast, so I'm going to do something which does not work very well on podcasts. Uh, I'm going to do a show of hands, uh, which we didn't even do at the Negroin talk, so apologies if you're listening at home. I'll try and report back on the findings. A quick, a quick straw poll. On my list of star architects um, currently operating today, I do not have Thomas Heatherwick. And I'm guessing that's because he is not an architect. So how can you be a star architect if you are not an architect? So I would just like to know from this completely well-researched group, um, is Thomas Heatherwick a star architect? Put your hand up if you think he is. For the listeners at home, that is an overwhelming yes. Because, and I think that's not surprising, right? Because he's designing, or he's firm are designing um, you know, groundbreaking buildings and structures around the world and uh, he's a very recognisable name so I think um, uh, I don't really know I asked that question, I just, it was just really bothering me I mean, it's, um, worth, it's worth adding to that Rob um, like you know I am a fairly vocal critic of Heatherwick but I, it does bore me when people say but he's not an architect, he employs lots of very good architects and he runs an architecture firm which is very successful so that's kind of a moot point. I can add something about Hellerwick if you want. <laughs> but um, I was interested while you were talking earlier, is it less about the work that's done and the type of the buildings? Could Lakaton and Vassal or Peter Barber be a star architect if they just do housing and social housing? Or do you have to be doing museums and towers and art centres and bridges and things with trees all over the roof? You know, or, so is it about the typology and how that's mediated or perceived and less about actually the person or... What they, what they're interested in. Oh, uh, Joy, do you want to take that one? 
surely Starkitect is, is, it's about street cred, right? <laughs> it's, it's literally, can you go out to the guy and the gal on the street and say, do you know who Thomas Heatherwick is, or do you know, more likely, Norman Foster? Um, and, and is it a yay or a nay? Um, I, I think, I think, I actually think that that list is really interesting because I think your average guy and gal on the street doesn't know, you know, more than 50% of that list, actually. So it's, it is, it is, it is this group here that understands that list. Um, not, not your, your sort of wider audience, but I, I would say, um, firstly, you know, fellow American, um, uh, do those guys absolutely have a responsibility, uh, guys and gals, I should say, to, to, to produce social housing? Shit, yes, right? I, I mean, that they're not. They, uh, firstly, how do you wake up in the morning if you don't do some of that or teach people? You know, you've, you've got to do some, you've got to give back. I think it's, I think if you're not, you're, you're, you're pretty much a dickhead. And, like, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. So I, I think your question was a yes-no. Do, do you have a responsibility? And I think the answer has got to be yes. But... Um, for for the you know if, if you if you are can you become famous doing social housing please can we make that sort of happen <laughs> let's let's create a star architect for for social housing there have there have been people recognized I think um, for doing social housing but but it's it's not it's not media it's not media friendly and so it's not therefore permeating um, very very widely and it is there is I can I candy performs better on social media and gets gets the shares and the likes, and maybe social housing doesn't, um, because you have to read the narrative to understand it a little bit better. So that's, that's a shame, isn't it? Um, and, you know, maybe we, maybe we all could collectively put some power behind, um, I think, promoting some of those stories ourselves and saying, this, this is important. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I noticed that um, probably Alejandro Aravina probably did the, some of the most famous social housing. He's not on this list. Yeah, he's amazing. I love his work. But like, um, I think that this thing of image making is, is contributes to the definition of what star architecture is. I think like in the description of this talk, we talked about slick renders and things like that. And so I think it's actually really interesting because a lot of the time, um, the thing that wins the competition isn't necessarily the best project. It's the one that will get the most clicks on Dazine or it's the thing that will, you know, uh, get the most engagement on social media. And so we've, I think as architects, we're focusing too much of our attention on, you know, making a good image rather than thinking about the project. Um, and I mean, I say we, but I can't actually call myself an architect so I didn't do my part three. Um, and so I'll never be on that list, even if I did become famous. So, <laughs> But I think like that thing of Thomas Heatherwick happens to a lot of architects. Um, and very, there's always... Uh, John Pawson did a podcast recently where he said someone's always coming up to him in lectures or whenever he ever calls himself an architect to say you're not an architect, so he has to refer to himself as an architectural designer. Um, so I just think this thing of the slick rendering, um, Rashid Musavi once wrote, uh, spoke about the fact that like now in competitions, they even ask you to produce the Instagram image as part of the competition. And so I think it is really wrapped up in the, the type of project, the type of media, the type of image that it's all packaged up in the problem of star architecture. Well, um, I'm glad that everyone is getting to my introduction slowly but surely, which I didn't cover off, but apparently... Um, Google is now a measure of the degree of celebrity status. Um, so the amount of clicks can define you as a star architect. Um, but we have a question from the outside. Yes. <laughs> um, so I just, it's interesting because to me, star architecture has always been about those buildings where form is prioritized above everything else. And I do have a Zaha Hadid building as an example, which is the Transport Museum in Glasgow. Um, I lived there uh, for six years. 
And the Transport Museum, it was, you know, an extremely famous museum that had um, existed for decades and had a very, uh, you know, known and beloved um, uh, collection. And so the Zahadid came in, came on and, you know, won the, the competition. I, I assume it was a competition um, with a very clear list of all of the items that existed in that collection. And the choice that was made was a, a Patrick Schumacher, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if that's actually the logic, this is what I heard, <laughs> was that the, um, the logic for the design was Zaha putting her fingers through some sand and making these ridges. And so it ended up being basically a, a big shed with, you know, a kind of... Um, like funny roof and it was you know ex extremely expensive structurally to to put together um, but what was upsetting about the museum is that the collection itself was much too big for the building and so they ended up putting all of these you know antique cars up on the walls so like rows of antique cars which the whole point of the antique car was that you could go and look at them and you know appreciate the way that they um, were designed, the, the leather of the seats, etc. And because there just simply was not enough room in this museum, there was like rows of cars and then you had a little screen that you could look at to zoom on like what the cars looked like. <laughs> it was like, why, what is the point of a museum? And it's just the fact that you would be able to design something that is so far you know, that is just getting it so wrong in terms of what it's meant to put forward, what it's meant to enhance, which is this collection. And, you know, the choice that was made was the form above the collection. I, just, I think that's what I think architecture is in terms of, like, you know, criticizing it as a terminology. I, I don't think that people have kind of touched on that enough tonight. <laughs> form, form follows architect. Patrick? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm so, yeah, I feel sorry that you, 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 you can't enjoy the museum. Um, we are trying, obviously, to embed the, the, our designs within the, the context and with the program and obviously develop it together. I mean, in the competition, you don't have that much interfacing. But we're quite serious about, obviously, making a value proposition and making... So that museum is, yeah, it's absolutely packed, jam-packed with, with all the items. I don't know if it, it, there was space for a bigger one, I, so, so I don't remember the, the exact details of it, but it is meant to be a shed, a transport shed, and that's why it has this kind of roof. The roof is this kind of uh, zigzagging roof, and it, it's just a simple move of not having a straight shot through, but having one turn and another turn, Looking finally at the at the ship in the harbor as the final e exhibit. So there's there's a concept that I think works quite well in this. Uh, and then there's an, another level you can go and overlook. Um, I, I, as far as I remember, I mean, there, yes, there are these uh, cars in the uh, up in the ceiling, but there are of course also quite a few cars and trains and so on. <laughs> but so we are not. Um, um, uh, it wasn't Zaha, you know, a, a preconceived thing. We, we, we are always, it's true, we have always two processes. One is literally very carefully in analyzing the briefs, the requirements, 
and trying to form, but also trying to form an image of how this could come together as an experience and be 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 legible, uh, and then various forms. I mean, so uh, through through three-dimensional simulations. So, and the renderings are just uh, to imagine. I mean, renderings and photorealistic renderings. I'm not sure if they deserve to be called slick. It's just the simulating more what and have even for yourself as a designer understanding and knowing what you're putting forward and as it exists clients demand that you can't show them something very abstract when when you could uh, have shown them something much more uh, tangible and fully explorable now with videos on VR a full experience of and, and that's what it is the technical is under the hood but the, what we are in charge on is gen generating these social interaction spaces, the phenomenology of being there and understanding and getting a sense of what the life process should be like, and that's what we need these visualizations for. And it is true that somehow, for some reason, they're at the AA, they're dismissed as commercial. For me, it's just if you don't do them, you don't know what you're designing, in fact. But, but you're do, doing diagrams and drawings which aren't what... Which, which are something else you could admire and find beautiful. I'm insisting on renderings, and in my firm, I'm only looking at renderings, by but, the way. But Patrick, because, um, your yeah. Zaha's earliest commissions were based on the most beautiful diagrams and paintings and drawings, and not on accurate, course, but like that Norman was Foster's drawings. Highly limiting. That's why, for ten, I mean, first of all, now it's different. 25 yeah, years yeah. ago, and we tried to visualize. I mean, I was you know, sitting down sketching and doing... But, and of course, and clients were, you know, not... It's hard when you do something innovative and different and you don't have the visualization to make it tangible, then you fail. You actually, that's why a lot of these jobs, we never get them because can, it's... Can I didn't just come make a through. point? Because one of the people, one of the collaborators we've not talked about, and I think it speaks yeah. to what you're speaking here and, and what you were just talking about, Glasgow, is uh, future users, the, the collaborator who will live in it and work yeah. in it for many, many years, whether they're curators or residents. Now, another museum which I think was terribly... Well, there's two. Uh, one is Juan Herreros, which is the new Munch Museum in Oslo, which I went to go and see, which was sold on a render, which then, after 10 years being built, the local residents were furious because it looks nothing like it. Um, but the Colchester Museum by Raphael Vignoli, the, the curve, or I forget what it's called now, um, but a big golden kind of curve. It's a terrible design for a museum because it's one big curved wall which you can't put anything on. But last year it won Museum of the Year, uh, despite that, because it has incredibly good community-led programming, curating, really good engagement with Essex and local... Uh, so, so it's not so much even about the shell and the form sometimes isn't the problem here. And I think it speaks to what you're talking about here because if we're so bothered about the render and accuracy and detail in that, maybe we're forgetting about actually the use and the program. And if you build a building around the program, which can be maybe articulated to clients through diagram and explanation and collaboration of different forms, then the building might be more future-proof for the future collaborators well, and well, users. Uh, well, actually, what I'm working on invested quite a few years, and we, uh, we're actually simulating the life process also in, in, in Unity, for instance, and in Unreal now, in VR, where, we have, where we experience the building, but also the, the interaction patterns and that is also then statistically um, uh, charted and analyzed encounter frequencies, how many encounters translate into communications. Uh, you know, because the complexity of large projects, so we have functionality, you can't cope with it anymore with, with diagrams. We have, I think we, we're in the stage of agent-based simulation, for instance. We, we are taking it seriously, but also we, we, we have... 
the intuitive grasp of the situation of a space of of understanding and would it work for the organization? Can you project the life you want to host as an institutional leader of an institution? I think for that, the uh, uh, clients really appreciate, and also for the designer themselves, I think, knowing what they're offering, what they're doing. And that's why we not only have these renderings, we have all these VR experiences now. And some clients, so they can go in and really look at everything, and, and, and then we fill them up also with some of the, uh, let's say, life process we're imagining, and they're getting a sense of, uh, of what they're getting. And that, because that's what they need to appraise that. Uh, somehow whether this is representing them or is the kind of situations they want to create for, for their institution? Yeah, I think, I'll just before we go back to manager, I'd just like to say that we are planning a talk on um, visuals and aesthetics and things like that. And, um, you know, the counter-argument to your point, Will, is that I've seen some beautiful clay models of buildings, and I think that's incredibly deeply irresponsible to show this baked-in-a-kiln building, which is never going to possibly ever exist like that, unless they could scale it up to that, which would be totally mad and amazing, but very impractical. But um, Manache, your, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to go back to maybe, Patrick, what you said earlier about um, that my comment about slick renderings is because I was like, down on them because they're commercial. And I don't, I, that's not what I was saying. I think my problem with them is that they commit a project to a kind of very early stage idea too soon because they look so real. And then like the, the exact thing that you talked about where 10 years later when it actually gets built it doesn't look like the rendering which you sold everyone on. And then there's like a huge outcry. And I think there's a way, like I have nothing against renderings. I have a problem when they, they look like too finished when there's still a half-baked idea. And I think that we undervalue imagination like there's a reason why most ten, like nine times out of ten the book is better than the movie it's because everyone is allowed to imagine what the what it might look like and I think before we used to maybe require the client to imagine what the project could be and we as communicators did more did more of like a kind of descriptive presentation like I think my favorite Serpentine Pavilion was the one by Smiljan Radic where he the writing when they I mean the Serpentine like press release always has an image and I didn't think the image was that exciting but I loved what he wrote about it and he actually wanted to be inside one of his models so he tried to think how could he scale that up to make his pavilion which looks like some sort of prehistoric egg on some rocks but it I mean yes it, whatever you had to say about that is maybe very irresponsible etc but I just thought it was an interesting approach to building that rather than always the model being a representation of the architecture that architecture could be a representation of the model so yeah, I just I just think we need to like give clients some credit or like force them to maybe imagine some things, and because Foster was talked about earlier by Joy, I think um, Ollie Wainwright did this thing where he they there was like a competition uh, where lots of architects were competing for this tower in New York, and then he had all the Vimeo videos of them each presenting for the same project, and. Um, you know, they they all stood up and they did a presentation, and I won't I won't go. I don't know if they're still even available, but um, you used to be able to watch them if you could find them, and uh, they all did a version of the like everyone did their brand version of the presentation for this tower, and Foster won the competition, but it's because he did some sketches, but he mainly won because he told the client he just presented their brief back to them. He was like, "You want this, you want that, and so we've done this based on what you want," and it was like a. I guess a verbal masterclass, and I just think that there is a way to move beyond just slick imagery. I think VR is just a tool, 
It's about like how we use those to not maybe commit to ideas too soon. I was just, I was just gonna. Uh, we wish we would have had a bit more time, and eventually, eventually you have to confront yourself with what you're gonna uh, construct. But it, it, yeah, in competitions, it's quite, it's a bit early. That's true. So if if you, if they could just trust us and give us more time to develop it, I think that would be appreciate. It would be would be good. I was just going to say, Manager, I wasn't saying that the the Serpentine Pavilion model would be irresponsible. I was just making a face because it's also a nightmare for a PR to try and sell that stuff. And that isn't isn't that an interesting point? If I send a beautiful Smiljan Radic model to the Evening Standard, they're like, "Where's the artist's impression? Where's the render?" You know, and they. But then, Rob, I write every month for the RIBHA on planning permissions that have been granted, and I ask the architects for images to go with it. And I always now have to add, it would be great if it wasn't just slick renders. If you had a sketch or a model or something from the process of making something, um, that would be great. No, and, uh, and it looks so much better on the page and communicates to an audience what's there. We have, yeah, it's a, definitely a, I think it's definitely a process for architects to unlearn that, um, you know, the preconceptions. But uh, Joy, you had a point. So, uh, Manager, I was going to say, I think the, the masterclass that Foster gave is in narrative storytelling, right? And I think that's, that's the thing. And... and you know, with a lot of love to a lot of experts in this room, one of the things architects aren't very good at is actually telling a pithy story in less than a sort of an academic tome. Um, and it doesn't take much to just go through most architects' websites and see that, you know, creating a case study bit of copy, they're really long. And I can tell you categorically, there ain't nobody reading that stuff. Nobody, I mean, maybe the peers who are like, I really want to learn from this space, but clients are not reading that. They, they want the the narrative in a digestible form. And that's not to say they're not interested in sustainability, materiality, you know, social cohesion, integration, all of that. These, these are really important things. But I think, you know, Norman Foster can tell a story. And that's probably why he's been successful. I think that that narrative piece is, there should be, and if there isn't, there should be a, a, a part of, you know, your architecture education that is, how do you, how do you tell the story of your architecture well? Uh, and, and, in a way that makes people, you know, have a visceral, pleasurable, lovely, this is it. I, I get it. I love it. I want it. Um, so well, I, I totally, anyway. No, yeah. I was just going to say, well, Joy, you are the storytelling winner of the Arkabu Awards. Um, small plug there. Um, uh, uh, and that just, you reminded me of um, something uh, which is, yeah, perhaps the rise of the new wave of Starkitects with the, uh, you know, Bjarke Ingels has the diagrammatic things that he, he has the VR videos where he lifts up a building and twists it and then says, look, there it goes, it makes sense. And everyone watching it goes, yes, I want that building. But then you're like, but wait, he just twisted a block. Why did I believe that? And so maybe there's a sort of... It's theatre. It's, it's theatre, theater. it's yeah. theatre. But uh, we've got a, uh, um, I'm going to stop talking, I've got a question here. And then we'll go to Steve. Okay, Can I, right. Well, going back to your point, many years ago I lived in Marseille and I worked on a book with the great, late, great Will Allsop. I got to know him very, very well. I'm a photographer and I, I did a book with him. And just like you were saying, the early, the early iterations of your practice were based on interesting paintings. Will won the project by interesting paintings and also by a maquette that didn't actually, didn't actually finish wasn't the, the, the starting maquette wasn't the original, didn't finish as the original building. 
And it was a very difficult thing to win because Marseille, is a, in those days, was a very corrupt city and a very interesting city. And he won it by the force of the project and the force of his personality. And an enlightened client, and a client who was prepared to accept the paintings and read the paintings and accept the personality and accept the maquette and go with it and invest a lot of money the Grand Bleu is a big, was a big, big, big project. Blue, yeah. yeah, big, big project. And so in some ways, just as you're saying about clients these days want really slicky stuff, it's beholden on, on sometimes on the star architects to in, <laughs> engage and encourage and educate the clients and also to look out for the best clients and to have those clients because that reciprocal arrangement makes the best kind of architecture perhaps. But, um, Paul, do you think, you know, Will was fated as a rising star and didn't quite get to star architect level, did you? And do you think that's because he didn't play the game? Well, Will was never, ever going to play the game. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, but, uh, is there a place for star architects not playing the game? Is that the James Dean of, of architecture? I'm not sure. I can't, I can't really think of a James Dean of architecture. But I, I do think... And, one of my great regrets when, because I, I spent quite a lot of time going out with him, and we drank a lot, and we had a great time together, and he was a, a great raconteur, and he offered me the opportunity to shoot his building, and he'd pay me in his paintings. And I said, no, I'll have the money, man, don't worry. And uh, yeah, it, it, that was uh, one of the regrets of my life, I think. Can I, can I just say, too, though, but not every client will do that, right? So I, 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 Eric Perry is the other one. I don't know if you've seen his paintings. They're really beautiful. And he does watercolor, pencil, whatever. It's, they're gorgeous, gorgeous things. But, um, I, and I, I'll never forget, but I've got one client who his, his the, the line he would say almost every single meeting, and he'd say it to architects, he'd say, you know what, I just want an easy life. And so you get the... the People that will, you know, commission will off a off a painting and a, a maquette made of matchsticks or whatever, but um, you also get people in real positions of power who, who they they look through the singular lens of risk, right? And that is most corporates, government, uh, public sector. You know, it's it's they they look through this lens of risk and and actually a slick render is going to really help you out. <laughs> I, I totally agree. That's exactly what you're saying. Is that it, it's, it, I, I've worked for enough really big architects to know exactly what sells. But that's, that's why it was a, more of a request to, for, the, for the clients, for the developers to take the risk. To be better. And to be better. And, and the whole kind of the process of, of employing architects and also the process of, of competitions to be much more liberal and, and to be to have ceramic building and clay. But, but just to think out of the box a bit and be a bit more conceptual rather than be really literal. Literal. Because that whole kind of really slick thing breeds into a literalism, which just continues. And the thing about um, fashion is fashion... If architecture is just like fashion now. Apart from they don't make perfume. They do make furniture, but not quite perfume yet. But the way that... The, the, that the fashion and um, architecture is now is, is exhibited and mediated is by very, very select images. 
there's not a discourse, there's no, there's no editorial budget to shoot architecture independent of what the, what the architects want to be seen. So it's just like a fashion house having their photographer that goes out and produces the images. So there's, there's, there is no further discourse because those, the, no one else is allowed to see the eight images which one architect will put out that goes out to Reba and every other magazine. So it's just like fashion. There is one difference with fashion, though, here. Um, is that fashion houses, the big ones, the star architects or the fashionist stars or the startorialists, um, do not make their money from the, fashion, the catwalk shows and the big things. You know, they lose a lot of money on them. They make their money from selling the perfume and the T-shirts and no, cheap, exactly. cheap bags. They also pay their photographers a great deal more as well. Some, <laughs> my partner might disagree with that, but yes, yeah, some. Um, the architects don't have that. You, know, you don't get the Norman Foster doing more affordable Norman Fosters for the social housing or for local Foster's for IKEA. <laughs> exactly. So you don't get that necessary hierarchy. Maybe there should be more mechanism built in for that, which is, goes back to, I think, what Joy was talking about earlier, about um, having more of an equitable kind of approach to architecture, not just the bridges and the skyscrapers and the big town halls and the Grand Blues, as beautiful as it is. I, th I think um, this, although you two, if you want to have this chat, you could do this because we're going to wrap up. So you could then just have a drink and, and, and natter away. Um, so I'm just going to have, I've got one final point from the floor. Then I'll go to the speakers really quickly for a roundup and then we can drink. Yeah, I, um, Paul, thank you for that input. I thought it was brilliant. And I think um, the question on where the maverick is now is an important one um, for all the reasons you're alluding to. Um, a quick one on Heatherwick, and it goes back to what maybe Manager and has been discussed earlier. And I, 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 and I'm just back from Marseille, so I stayed over at Unity, and I've got Corb in my head, and Will Allsop in my head, and an amazing city in my head. And I was thinking again of this talk, and Heatherwick comes, name comes up, and it annoys me. And it annoys me because I remember when he was on Radio 4 as an expert on urbanism, um, when I thought he was an architect, but he's not. Um, and he kind of played the part of an urbanist, urban theory person. He kind of had that quick thinking, able to tell a story. He's a nice guy, he can talk well, he can paint that picture, he can tell that story. And it's almost as if nobody's questioning it. Um, and um, when you think of Corb, and I guess we're going back 100 years now, almost 75 years ago, but you know, you wonder what he would have done on Radio 4 when asked if he was, um, uh, what he had to say about the planning system and um, master planning and so forth, which um, Thomas Hellerwick was. So that made me think that is Thomas Hellerwick truly a maverick or is he not? I think, I think Corb would have said master plan in big blocks in straight lines, wouldn't he? And demolish most of Paris. Um, so let's just round up really quickly. Have we got any final thoughts from our speakers? Uh, Manager, anything you want to say about star architects? I, I think to truly tackle the issue of star architecture, you've got to think about all the systems that underpin it. We're like too keen to label things and understand like who's an architect and who isn't, who's a star architect and who isn't. Like, who can get me, who can sell this building to me? Uh, we have too many invited competitions when maybe we should have more open calls. Like, it's a kind of, it's a closed loop. And actually, like, how are we going to push the profession forward if there aren't opportunities for new voices to come in, both within bigger practices? Like, I think your example of make that you gave earlier, but, like, how can multiple voices 
sit at the table, but also I think especially in this country that it's like a very specific like type of crowd. Like even I, I went to uh, post lecture dinner once with Rainier de Graaf and he talked about how at the design museum he was considered an outsider because he wasn't part of this British boys club because he was Dutch. Like, I mean, and we were supposed to feel like sorry that for him that like he wasn't included in this. And I was like, so if he's struggling, like what hope do the rest of us have to sit at the table? So I'm just curious as to like, what are the ways to like break down these systems and enable kind of a more diverse, different conversation to happen? Bill, you're next door. Uh, yeah, I mean, not much to say. We've all said a lot. But um, I think, as I mentioned, all other cultural sectors have a similar issue. And I think all other cultural sectors... Um, it would be much better just to remove that kind of phantasmagoria of the idea of the star and actually realize that there's, for every one star, whether that's a Damon Hurst or a, you know, a fashion designer or an architect, there's a thousand practitioners doing often more interesting things. Um, so just find ways to get those voices heard. And, um, and yeah, just try and... I think over the next 20 years the whole world, we won't be able to have this conversation in 15 years anyway, because the conditions and the economy and the climate will not be the world in which maybe star architects are the people that have to be at the top. And it might be a, a, a landscape and the conditions which allows the plurality of those thousands of voices to actually find a place to come through. Um, so, you know, it might be the end of this word anyway, and I wouldn't miss it. Patrick? <clears throat> Yeah, I, I do find actually that the, the, the world of architecture and design has democratized enormously in terms of through the new media, through the zines, through Instagram, and everybody's, and the images flying around and floating around, and you can be, go viral with somebody who doesn't really depend on a name, and it depends on the image, and the image can maybe speak a thousand words, and I do believe that we have an intuitive grasp, so that kind of strange and uh, enigmatic and inviting image and... Uh, you know, you project the beautiful life, a new life, an identity. When you thrill, you feel it, you want to be there. And that means something. It's not just superficial. I think it, it's, it's something which comes through, you know, and you look at some of these fantastically light and white Japanese houses and you, you just want to be in there. And you can imagine having a party and meeting somebody there. So, so I think that I, I, I trust that image culture isn't... Uh, we, we should not be too quickly dismissive of it. And it's it's highly democratizing because, because the, these, the, there's this kind of uh, paraphernalia of images and flying around for everybody, and we even use it. So even in, in, in the, our teams, they, they grab things and are insisting, tell me where this is from. No, it's from the internet. No, <laughs> give me the reference. But that's not necessary for them anymore. This is just what's out there. And that's made, I think it's quite open. And I think I see more and more voices coming through, of course, on that level, of course getting big projects and executing them. That's the difference. And then the, we need these larger firms, unfortunately. And, uh, but within the firm, we also, by the way, employee-oriented, you have, you have these hundreds of stars and, and internal figures, and they also go out, lecture, and teach, and so on. It's ultimately the mass media, of course, focus on a single person. Like with you said, they only want to talk one person when you're a curator. So I'm getting a lot of that talking, talking opportunity, and I'm getting good at it. As we but it's, 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 it's a distortion, of course. It's, it's, it's problematic. And before, when Zao was, you can imagine that, where all the attraction went, and I, even me slaving away and doing a lot of original work for 25 years, I was totally invisible to the mass media. So, so I know, but, but I was quite happy with that. So, so, so the, this will not go away, but underneath there's a lot of democratization, I think, which it's a new time, new era. Um, and, and I think there's the architects for big projects only, not for the rest of the 
culture of architecture. Thank you. And uh, Joy? Uh, Dianenko is also employee-owned, so, you know, I think that's, that's, there's a trend here. Uh, so I've got three things. So one is, uh, hey, success is okay. Um, I think let's spend the time to raise the people who should be raised up and less time on tearing people down, just generally. Um, they can do that for themselves, maybe. The second thing is, I think Starkitect is not a thing. I think we kind of, it's not a thing in a collaborative industry. It, there's, it, it's just a figment of the media. And maybe we just decide together that it's not a thing. Let's just focus on the collaborations. And the biggest thing I'm taking away, I can't remember who said it, but the IMDB of the architecture industry, uh, I just think if no one's actually building that, I think I might. <laughs> so thanks. And uh, email me for credit later. <laughs> um, or does anyone want to go in on it together? Like, I'd be super up for that. This is the kind of stuff we do all the time. It's like, this is a great idea. Let's just do it. There's no money. It's fine. Um, I, I think, you know, Robin Hood, you know, get, get some really expensive projects up here and then do some cool stuff for no money. I think that's really fun. So, hey, should we all just get together and do the IMDB of architecture? I think that's, that's my big takeaway. I love it. We'll just be very careful with that because there was a website called ArcLeaks. I don't know if everyone remembers that uh, about 10 years ago, which just became the biggest bitch fest ever. So be careful when you give architects free reign to input data. And what happened to Property Week, W-E-A-K? I thought that happened as well, which I always thought was very oh, funny. I need to look that up. <laughs> um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up there. Uh, in a minute, I'm, I'm going to thank the speakers, but, but I am also then after thanking the speakers, and you're probably going to applause, I think, then I'm, but then I am going to pass on to Hugh to close. So if you just, uh, we'll do the thank yous and then go to him, and then we can all suddenly start talking and, and, and laughing and hopefully sticking around. So I hope you'll join me in thanking all of our speakers tonight. And thank you to Rob for sharing brilliantly. Um, so thank you very much, Rob. And, and thank you for all, for all for coming, of course, because these things are only good if people turn up, <laughs> which is uh, the main, uh, the main uh, reason for doing them. Um, we will, we're actually, actually going on the road in June. We're going to Bristol. Um, we're intending to go to Glasgow, Brighton, and somewhere east. I don't know where, Margate, probably, something like that. So we're going to go north, south, east, west, to look at the politics of architecture. Yeah, we are. You want to come? You're not going to go to Italy now. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be doing that next, but there will be more in here, obviously, and the um, best place to look is probably on our website. There's normally coming soon stuff on there, so you can check it out. There, there might also be another off-site Negroni talk to do with the British Pavilion at some point, Absolutely. but we can't we'll, really we'll... announce too much right now. Okay, so I won't say anything more now. Toilets. Toilets. Public toilets. Okay. Um, so all that remains to be said is hang around as long as you want. Part of the vibe is to stay here and chat with people and you can grab older people if they're still going to hang around. So keep the debate going and have a drink. Cheers. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, 
mixing it in architecture.